0: Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. As doctors, it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day tasks and lose sight of what our patients are experiencing. We tend to view things more objectively, and as a result, sometimes we aren't mindful of the stress patients go through. It helps to occasionally look at things from a different perspective. In this episode of Off The Grid, we hear from Dr. Kevin Waltz about his recent experience as an ophthalmic patient. Kevin had cataracts at an early age and had to have surgery. And now nearly 20 years later, after experiencing some issues as the result of the surgery, Kevin had to undergo a second surgery. He's sharing his story to help his fellow doctors gain some insights into what patients and their families experience and what we can learn from putting ourselves in their shoes. Coming up on Off The Grid.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Brynmar Communications and supported by advertising from AlCon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to iTube.net forward slash podcasts. That's iTube
0: E net. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Uh, today we've got the opportunity to talk with Dr. Kevin Waltz. And Kevin and I go back quite a few years and we've worked together, we've operated together outside the United States on some projects that we've worked on. But today, instead of talking about our surgical techniques, uh, our preferences, what we can learn from each other as surgeons, Kevin has a different story he wants to share. We were talking about it a few months ago and I asked him whenever he was ready um, if he felt like it would be interesting for others to hear about. Um, Kevin actually was an ophthalmic patient recently, and I feel like there's probably a lot to unpack inside of this. Um, I think there's a lot we can learn from Kevin, and I think it is going to be a good reminder for us about what it's like to be the patient, not just the doctor. So, Kevin, thank you for coming on tonight and sharing a little bit about your story. I really appreciate it.
2: I'm happy to be here, Gary. I think it's an important part of being a doc is to share your experience when you're a patient because it really helps your fellow doctors get a better idea of that perspective.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so easy for us to kind of put that patient perspective in the icebox, so to speak, because we have to be ready when we walk into a room to be totally objective, worried about the task at hand. Um, but sometimes I think that can actually be a detriment if we don't occasionally remind ourselves of what the stresses are that the patient and their family are going through, and uh, you know, one of my favorite you know, corny jokes is you know, the definition of minor surgery is surgery happening to anybody else. Um, you know, if it's happening to you, it's major surgery. So um, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about um, your initial experience as an ophthalmic patient yourself, and we can just kind of walk through the story.
2: Sure. You know, I had the, your classic nightmare as an ophthalmologist. I'm 40, 41 year old ophthalmologist, and all of a sudden I can't see. And lo and behold, I've got cataracts at a very early age. Turns out they're congenital to my family. We didn't know. And I've got to have surgery in relatively short order. I went from 2025 in January to about count fingers by April. Wow. And, you know, I, I had my partner at the time do it. He's an awesome guy. He's a great surgeon. And he inherently understood the key factor that the patient wants the surgeon to understand. And that is the patient wants to know that the surgeon is in there with you, not on your side, but they're sharing your tail risk and tail risk is something that can happen months or years later. And that's what we have insurance for. Right. But it doesn't really cover the problem. So the ultimate compliment of a surgeon was my partner at the time said Kevin this was our final pre-op said Kevin don't worry if the surgery goes bad you're going to be the best paid medical ophthalmologist in the state
0: (laughs) that's a nice (laughs) nice way to put it I guess
2: yeah so he's he's accepting the risk with me so he's doing his utmost to do a great job and that's ultimately what the patient wants they want to know that surgeon is with them No matter what. Right. Now, the other part, though, is we tend to be operate in terms of fashion. So at the time, it was quite fashionable to really, really aggressively clean the capture bag so that it maintained its uh, flexibility over time. Right. This was 1998. So that was that was a cool way to do it. Well, he cleaned it really well. He cleaned it so well that I got a dead bag syndrome which we didn't know about at the time.
0: Well, Kevin, you know, I'll be honest. That is a term that, you know, maybe I'm behind the curve and that wouldn't be the first time if that's the case. But explain dead bag syndrome because I think there's probably a lot of younger ophthalmologists who have not been around long enough to experience it in their own hands and maybe haven't seen it. So explain that to us.
2: Well, one of the benefits of having at least a few epithelial cells is you get a little bit of epithelial fibrosis And it seals the front and back capsule together and it seals the IOL in place. My IOL never really fully sealed in place. Only the nasal portion of my capture bag sealed because the temporal portion had been cleaned so much. Gotcha. And that's kind of the definition of a dead bag that you clean it so thoroughly it never really seals. Gotcha. So, you know, that was what we did. And it was a beautiful surgery but there are no evidence that there was issues at the time and it, i had 18 years of wonderful surgery i my vision for most of that time was uncorrected 2010 minus a distance and j1 plus near
0: yeah because you had the array lens correct the original multifocal lens that's correct amazing
2: so great surgery but essentially because of the technique some many years later my temporal haptic came loose. And so as they say, I had another learning opportunity.
1: <laughs> right.
2: So it happened in August of 16. And I woke up one morning and I had to poke you. It's like, what the heck? I didn't have it yesterday. And we discovered very quickly that my IOL had sunsetted a little bit. Not a lot. And... It's interesting because diplopia in and of itself is not that troublesome. It's not like you've got blurred vision. Right. So a little bit of diplopia is very tolerable. That's lesson number one for the surgeon is, you know, you would not like diplopia, but I was still 2020. 20, I was fine. So I chose not to do anything. I kept operating and was fine. And it was actually during some of those times that we operated. Over time, there were three separate episodes where I had a stepwise falling of my IOL until ultimately I had five images in my left eye. And that became a little bit more bothersome. And as the images increased, the blurriness increased, which was much more bothersome than just the multiple images.
0: Interesting. Okay.
2: So finally, almost two years later, okay, I got, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Eventually it's going to fall out of place. So I got to do something. Right. The next thing I would encourage the docs to think about is when the patient knows without doubt they have to do something, the risk-benefit issues go away. Right. The question is, do I have the right surgeon? And if there are issues, well, there are issues. There are going to be much worse issues if I didn't do something. So I'm following my own advice to patients that said, don't do it until you have to. I had to do it. I found a great surgeon. I, um, I talked to several surgeons about getting it fixed. People weren't that excited about it because it was a strange situation. It's a multifocal lens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So ultimately I was going to be in Berlin in June of 2018 for a meeting. Burkhard Dick practices a few hours away by train. He's a fearless, amazing surgeon. I asked him if he would do it, he said yes. So. After the meeting, I went to Burkhardt's place, and he fixed
0: me. Before we get into that, I imagine you had, I mean, you're thinking all the things I'm thinking, right? You're thinking, okay, are we going to be able to save the lens? Are we going to be able to suture the bag, potentially? Uh, Is the lens going to have to come out? Are we going to do a Yamani technique? What lens are we going to put in? I've I've had a, a multifocal all this time. Am I going to be able to keep my multifocality? Walk me through your decision process on not only who you went with, because I think we would all agree that Burkhard Dick is, you know, an amazing surgeon and um, that's kind of a, you know, if you have access to him, that's an obvious choice. But walk me through those other other nuanced choices that you had to be sort of doing this um. pro-con. I
2: had originally hoped to have a light adjustable lens. Okay. So one of the reasons why I was putting it off was to get the light adjustable lens on board where I could get to it and get the treatments after the surgery.
1: Okay. Gotcha.
2: I was part of the US FDA trial. I love the technology, love the lens, and it's a three-piece silicone lens, so it would be perfect in my situation. Right. But the way the Calhoun, now RX site, was developing – it just wasn't possible. And I couldn't wait any longer. So that was off the table. But that was my first choice. Second choice was the IC8.
0: Right. And it's explain a- that to people who may not be familiar with the IC8. I, I, I agree. I think the IC8 is, is phenomenal.
2: It's a uh, single piece acrylic with a mask I, mask embedded in it. So it's essentially it's a pinhole mask within a single piece of acrylic.
0: Right. It's like the camera inlay, but the inlay is in the IOL. Yep. Got it.
2: And it's shrunk a little bit because it's closer to the retina, but yes. Right. And it's interesting. Burkhardt and I talked. Burkhardt has a lot of experience with the IC8. And he and I agreed that that was the best choice for that was available for me. So we decided that we would imp- – try to fixate my original lens because I was perfectly happy with my lens before it decentered, because that was going to be less surgery, less traumatic, etc. Right. And if that wasn't possible, I would get an IC eight, even though he was gonna have to tie some sutures to the single piece of acrylic. Okay.
0: Because- like a like a cow hitch um, suture to the with Gore Tex? Yeah. Something okay. like that. Okay.
2: So that was the thought process. We considered other options. We considered a monofocal, which I wasn't very excited about. And so we had a a process, try to keep the array. If that doesn't work, do an ICA. If that doesn't work, do a three-piece monofocal.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So the strategy is set in place. And, uh, okay, so walk me through the, you know, getting ready for surgery. What are you thinking as you're getting ready for surgery? I mean, you've been on the other side of it so many times. How is it different?
2: You know, it's, it's a, as a knowledgeable patient, there's a bit of a religious experience aspect to it. Because you have to place your hands in somebody else's care. So I stopped thinking about it. I had made all the decisions that I could make. I was going to be asleep. I was totally at peace with it. I had to do it. I had the best surgeon in the world that I knew. I trusted him completely. At that point, there's nothing else you can do.
0: Yeah. Why worry about something you have no control over at that point? You've made your decision. You've placed your bets. It's time to play the game. (laughs) It's time time to go to surgery.
2: Yep. And so that's also part of what's important for the surgeon to understand is, you know, it's why does a patient get upset at a surgeon? One of the reasons why they might is they don't know the surgeon. They don't really trust the surgeon. They're kind of doing it for reasons that who knows what they are. It might be there's only one surgeon option. In my case, I had tens of thousands of surgeons, literally, I could choose from.
0: Yeah, I'm so kind, of, I, kind of offended you didn't uh, didn't call me, but that we'll talk about that later.
2: <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's part of what the surgeon needs to do and have their staff help the patient understand why that surgeon's the one.
0: Right. That's a great point. That's a great point.
2: The rest of it, if there's problems, there's problems and you deal with it.
0: Right. Right. But you can't ever look, you would never be able to look back and say, I did not go through the process of choosing wisely. You could always have peace of mind knowing I did everything in my power to control the outcome to the extent that it was controllable. And now I can let the chips fall where they may because that's all we can do in life is is... Kind of shoot the averages and stack the deck in our favor.
2: And it's like my first surgery that didn't in 18 years later, didn't turn out exactly the way I wanted. But I had a fantastic surgeon who's totally on my side. I got no regrets. Here I am.
0: Right. So tell us what what did Burkhard find and what did he end up doing?
2: Well, my capture bag was more compromised than we had originally suspected. You know, originally, we all we've got is examination. And I've got serial photographs that show my lens dropping over time. And what appears to be my capsule, but there was a rip in the anterior capsule. Uh, part of the uh, peripheral capsule temporally was compromised. And that probably led to the to some of the problems as well. And so Burkhardt had to do a vitrectomy and he um, released the the temporal um, haptic from, it was kind of stuck in the ciliary body. He made a scleral flap temporally, exteriorized the haptic uh, through the scleral flap, sutured the haptic within the scleral flap and to, he did that so that he could make it symmetrical with the nasal uh, haptic, which was still very secure. Gotcha. So with an asymmetrical placement, he couldn't do a Yamani because it would be asymmetrical. So here he made basically an adjustable fixation of the, of the temporal haptic, and then he closed the pocket ceiling on it and then closed the conge over that.
0: Wow. And have you had a YAG previous to this? Was your posterior capsule still intact? It was not. Okay. So he's, he's really having to fight with anterior and posterior uh, capsular remnants, asymmetric fibrosis, and a haptic that's, that's sort of meandered its way outside of the confines of the bag. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. No, I'm really. I think you made the right choice there. I'm really glad. Uh, As as a matter of fact, I may send some patients to uh, to Berlin after this call. Um, (laughs) So, tell me about anesthesia. Um, I I know a little bit of, of this story, but. You know, it wasn't all just rainbows and sunshine.
2: You know, it was going to be a significant long surgery. So we agreed, I'm just going to get a general so he wouldn't have to worry about me moving or talking to me because he didn't really want to talk to me. He just wanted to work. Right. And I said, no problem. So I have my anesthesia. I'm getting up, waking up, and I'm going, whoa, what happened? My eye feels fine. I'm really blurry. But I'm mentally deficient my ability abstract problem was drastically reduced. You know, I'm a smart guy, went to medical school, got into ophthalmology, so I'm one end of the bell curve of intelligence. I am certain that when I woke up that day and the next day, I was way on the other side of the bell curve because normal things like, what am I gonna order at a restaurant? How am I gonna get a taxi from here to there? Where's my room in the hotel? I couldn't do
0: it. And you think that was just anesthesia, just slowly coming off of anesthesia? You
2: know, I don't know. I sometimes get funny reactions to medicines. I, I can't explain it. I wasn't. I wasn't unconscious. I didn't have decreased consciousness. I had decreased mental function.
0: That's wild. So you're in Germany trying to make your way home, and I mean, i I've, I've been in. Austria and Germany and, you know, people, for the most part, speak English, but everything is written in German and trying to figure out which train to get on is not easy. That had to be terrifying.
2: It it was, and Burkhardt, again, was great. He arranged for me to have a taxi to the train station, and I explained to the taxi driver, who was kind of somebody who worked with Burkhardt, I I can't do it. Can you park the taxi and take me to the train? And the guy was kind enough to do it. So I got on the train. I've got a first class ticket because I got two pieces of luggage. I've been in Europe for two weeks. And now I have to get off at the train station. And Burkhardt had made it clear if you miss the train station, you're toast. I mean, if you miss the station with the airport. Right. And so I'm sitting there, and all of these people are looking at me funny because i am um, got too much luggage. i crossed the line. There's a line demarcating where you can be in second class. I'm past that. I don't look German. And I felt threatened. Partly I felt threatened because I couldn't process the clues. Right. Looking at the exits, I'm going, oh, is this the one? Is this the one? So I got off one exit early because – I was afraid, and I got back on the train to, you know, to get off with the correct exit, And then I had to figure out how to get through customs and all the other rigmarole. And it was absolutely crazy. Wow. So when we tell our patients, you can't drive home, we should mean it. Because every once in a while, it just, the medicine just reacts funny with the patients.
0: Oh, right. So I
2: had surgery on Wednesday. I wasn't fully in capacity, uh, fully back into normal function until Monday.
0: And was it just like when you woke on Monday, was it like the fog just lifted? I mean, yeah, was that...
2: There was a physical sensation of fog in my head. I had I had this pressure sensation in my brain that it was just like, what the heck? And then on Monday, it was
0: gone. That is wild. So, Kevin, what... What takeaways, I mean, you've been giving us little pearls along the way about, you know, decision-making and why a patient would choose a surgeon and why a patient would be upset with a surgeon, but what, are, what other takeaways you you give for this?
2: Some of the things post-op were really good. I had a lot of trouble with my ocular surface disease post-op, so my recovery was very slow. Okay. I could tell that my lens was in good position early on but my epithelium was so bad. Eventually, we scraped it all off to start over. Okay. One of the things that was very interesting is people don't appreciate how important binocular summations is. So I've got a good right eye. I'm 2015, I'm corrected my right eye, J1+. plus. So C's great, even though it's got a multiple. And my left eye is my bad eye. And I can tell you I didn't really understand... The difference between a really bad eye and an annoying eye. All
0: right. Explain that.
2: Eyes really bad. When my left eye was really bad, when my left eye was open, it decreased the vision in my right.
0: Because you're overlaying a bad signal on top of a good signal.
2: Right. So then as my eye improved to about the 2040 range, 2050 range maybe, when I opened my left eye, it improved the vision in my right.
0: Gotcha. Because now you can summate.
2: There's a huge difference between that that difference. Okay. So when it opened up my left eye and it made my right eye worse, I closed it all the time. Right. When I got to 20-40 range, I opened it all the time. It was blurry, but it still helps. Right. And so you, you, your feeling of well-being is much, much better when you get to that point. So that also taught me is, you know, sometimes we get in a situation where the first eye has not gone great and we say, well, let's just do the second eye. That's a doctor decision that puts the patient at risk because if you get up in the poor vision in both eyes, it really is unsettling to the
0: patient. So, so let's put, let's put some meat on that. You mean if someone comes in post-op and they still have decimate folds or they, they have some epithelial edema Rather than just taking the other eye to surgery and potentially having the same issue with both eyes, give them a couple of weeks to let the edema clear, so that when they wake up from their second surgery, they're actually—if that's the bad eye—they're able to function. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Other yeah.
2: one, it's just terrifying to the patient.
0: If you know, when I
2: was 2015 in my right eye and 2200 in my left eye, I functioned okay.
0: Right. Right,
2: but if I drop to twenty fifty
0: in both eyes, I'm not going to function okay. Yeah, and you know we we have this perspective of knowing, okay, it's edema, it's going to clear, you're going to be fine. But you know, you're exactly right. If you're a patient and and you've gone through the first surgery and you're not where you want to be or even close to it, it's really hard to step into that second surgery just blindly trusting that it's going to work out. So I, I think that is a good reminder to. Remember to put ourselves in the patient's shoes, making sure they have at least one eye that's going to function before we, we take on on the next one. So,
2: another thing that happens is it gets back to that the, the trust factor for the patient. If the second eye goes great, surgeon's excused, you move on. Right. But the patient's going in, I'm not so sure, and when there's a problem, a break in trust and you're more likely to end up with problems with the patients both clinically and legally
1: right right
2: so it's good for everybody to if it's not just right or close to it just take
1: a breath
0: yeah yeah i agree i agree any any other life lessons on this i'm sure it's changed your perspective a little bit about Maybe the fragility of of our working career because this is a, this is a game changer for an ophthalmologist. I mean, we everyone needs their eyes, but you know I think we feel like we need them more than anyone else. <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, I feel like we feel I mean,
1: it. I mean,
2: I, I even from the very first surgery, we I was always concerned about well, what's going to happen here. I'm just getting started now. You know, I want to keep going, and that's a big deal. the The one thing that I think is really important for people to understand is our microscopes that we operate with these days are phenomenal. So with a 2015 eye and a 2200 eye, I can operate just fine. Normal rate, normal efficiency, normal safety. Because the optics and the brightness are so powerful with the scope, essentially you have the best pinhole system in the world with your microscope, and you see so well, it's unbelievable. So, At work, it's not an issue having some decrease in vision. If I want to work on the computer or if I want to read, it slows me down tremendously. But if I want to do cataract surgery, I'm fine. Gotcha. So that was a little bit of a surprise to see how much of a difference that was. I was worried about surgery, no problem. But I wasn't worried about reading, huge problem.
0: (laughs) Isn't that funny? Well, Kevin, we are so glad that you are on the mend and so glad that you had access to Dr. Burkhard Dick and the great work that he did. So hats off to Dr. Dick for the uh, fantastic work and fixing you up. And uh, I'll say this, you know, we'll just continue to follow your progress. And uh, if you have other lessons, both as a patient or as an ophthalmologist that you'd like to teach, you're always welcome. So thanks a lot, Kevin. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Gary. Kevin's story is a good reminder about what it's like to be on the patient's side. For his most recent surgery, he followed his own advice. Don't do it until you have to. He also spoke to several surgeons before choosing one. Once all the decisions were made, however, he had to stop thinking about it and place his trust in the surgeon. As doctors, it's important to realize how much we're asking patients to trust us and accept what they cannot control. We need to help them understand that we are with them throughout the entire process, accepting the risk along with them. With that, thanks for listening to Off the Grid. Until next time.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Brynmar Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net.